All right, it's time to invite all the kids to come on up front and find a spot to sit. Hello. We are excited this morning. All right, if you're about fifth grade and under, come on up. Feel free to bring somebody along with you if you'd like. Good to see everyone. Come on up. All right, good to see everyone this morning. Okay, now this morning I have something to show you. I have a box to show you. Now this isn't just an ordinary box. This is a a really special box. This could be the best box ever. Do you want to see this really special box? I'm glad you said yes, by the way. Isn't that awesome? Yes, I got one yes. Thanks, Ezra. Yeah, it's, it's a box, right? It's a box. But do you know what makes this box special? This box is special to my wife, Mrs. O'Malley. And it's special to her for a couple reasons. First of all, it's a special box to her because she made this box when she was in school. That's kind of special, isn't it? That's kind of neat. So it's special because she made it. And second, there's a second reason it's special. It's special because it serves a special purpose. It holds some special items for her, some things that are important to her. And so here's, I'll show them to you. Here's like a special necklace, not ice cream. No, not in the box. Here's a necklace, and there's some special pictures and some rings, some other stuff in there. So it holds special things. It serves a special purpose for her. Did you know that God has something that is really special to him too. Listen, guys, listen. God has things that are something that's really special to him as well, and that is his church, all of us. We are the church, right? And we are special to God. First thing, there's a couple things. First, God created us, and he brought us all together, right? And so he set us apart. He made us holy by the death and resurrection of Jesus, So God has made us who we are, and he's brought us together. And second, we also serve a special purpose. Did you know that? We together, we serve a special purpose for God. As we come together, God is with us in a special and unique way. God's spirit dwells in us, the Bible says. That's pretty neat, isn't it? That God dwells with us. So we are special to God, but it's not because of how great we are, right? It's because of what he has done for us, and that's what makes us so special. So here's a theological question for you, right? Theology is our our study of God, right? Knowing God. So here's a theology question for you. Where is God? Everywhere. Everywhere. That's great. You guys have great theology. God is everywhere, right? But did you know this? Even though God is everywhere, throughout the Bible, God has special places that he has put together where he chooses to make himself known in a really special way. Even though he's everywhere, he chooses to make himself known in special ways. In the Old Testament, we read like about the tabernacle, right? Where with Moses, they had to put all this stuff together and then 
as they would move about the, the desert or the countryside, they would move this tabernacle, but that would be a special place of worship where God would make his presence known, right? And then there was a more permanent structure that was the temple that they built. So they would build this temple, and that would be their place of worship, and God would make himself known there. In the New Testament, you know what God did? He established the church, his people. And we, when we gather together, God is with us in a special way. And so we are like, we are God's temple, the Bible says. We are his special, unique place where God is here on earth. Even though he's everywhere, he's with us here in a special way among us. So remember this box. This box was special because Mrs. O'Malley made it, right? And we are the church are special because God has saved us and brought us all together. This box was special because it has a special purpose, right? The purpose to hold those special items. And we, the church, are special because God has a special purpose for us. And that's to have a place for him to dwell in a really special and unique way here on this earth. So Pastor Jeremy's going to come, and he's going to teach us more about it. All right, so thanks for coming up. You can go back and have a seat. Right. Thank you, Pastor Jeff. We are in uh, 1 Corinthians 3, 16 to 23, and I'll finish where I left off last week also. 1 Corinthians 3, 16 to 23. We've got quite a bit of territory to cover, so I'm going to just kind of get your minds going the right direction this intro. Paul tells us that the local church is the dwelling place of, the God, of God. We are the temple. Paul then applies this theological truth that we are God's temple to specific issues of sin in a local church. So big theological truth, major central biblical theme, temple, applied to the down and dirty of life. That's what I want God to do here this morning. Let me read and we'll pray and then we'll pick up where we left off last week. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he might become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God, for it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours. And you are Christ's and Christ is God's. Father, I pray your blessing on the reading of your word that you would apply this to our lives that we might not be just hearers but doers of your word to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. One thing that I didn't get to last week that I want to get to this week is in verse 15. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. That is one of the main places that the Catholic Church has built its false doctrine of purgatory. Purgatory, according to Catholic teaching, is the final stage of purification for those who are going to heaven but depart from this life 
with venial sins. Venial sins are those defined as lesser sins that don't mortally condemn you to hell. Right? So we all, in agreement with Catholics, believe that after uh, death, heaven or hell is the destination for every human being. And that uh, destination is based on what you do with Christ. If you trust Christ, you are received by God's grace into eternal joy in His presence forever in heaven. If you reject Christ, if you reject the only salvation that God has provided for your sin, then you go to hell. So we agree with Catholic, our Catholic brothers and sisters there. Where we disagree is this intermediate state of purgatory. It's nowhere found in Scripture. It's definitely not found in this verse. Verse 15 simply can't bear the weight of a whole doctrine of purgatory. First of all, purgatory is supposed to be the place where all believers are, go, are, are to go to be purified. Well, verses 13, 14, and 15 aren't applied to all believers. They're applied just to pastors, to ministers here. Second, the testing uh, that is described in verses 13 and 14 and 15 is applied specifically to the preaching and teaching of pastors, not to, not to purification of sins over time. This is a once and done judgment for reward. This isn't a long-term, many-year purification of sins. Another way to say it is Christ is our only purification for sins. There is no such thing as purgatory. This is an error. And it's an error that you and I can make also. It's where we take our preconceived notions and read them into texts. It's where we take things that we already hold to be true and then go hunting in the Bible for texts that back up what we already believe. And so we're just like Catholics in this sense. We do this. We don't do it with purgatory. We might do it with other things. But there is no such thing as purgatory, and especially there is no such thing there in verse 15 of chapter 3. So that's the first thing I didn't get to last week. Now, if you're a Catholic, if you're a former Catholic, our job in the church is to point out errors according to Scripture. And so please don't take unnecessary offense at this. We want to believe what God has said, and we don't want to add to it nor subtract from it. Um, and so one of the failures here of Catholicism is to take away from the completed, finished work of Christ. He is sufficient. There's nothing needed to be added to it or taken away from it. He has done all of the work necessary for your sins to be cleansed, to be purified. Christ is enough. So the second thing I wasn't able to get to last week that is vital uh, to this week's text, that's found in last week's text, is all of this temple language. First, just a bit of background, temple is, as Pastor Jeff said, a major theme in the Bible. It's everywhere from beginning to end. You have likely heard, if you've been around Christianity for any bit of time, that in the Old Testament, when God's people left Egypt, He gave them instructions to build a temporary sort of temple called a tabernacle. Tabernacle was where God would dwell among His people. It was a tent, and that tent was built and God went with his people. And then when they came into the promised land, he gave them plans that Solomon built for a permanent tabernacle where God resided. And then as you see in our text this morning, God's people themselves have become God's dwelling place. We are the temple. And then at the very end of the Bible, 
you see in Revelation 21, this temple language applied now not to the promised land, not only to where God's people gather, but to the whole earth. The whole earth, in essence, becomes a worldwide temple, a place where God dwells in holiness with his people forever. Now, the first part that we don't hear all the time is that the Garden of Eden is described as a temple also. That is, the Bible begins with God fashioning a place with his own hands where he could dwell with his people. And then all throughout Scripture, that theme is carried through the fall, through the temple in Israel, through Christ who is tabernacling amongst us, God temple on earth, through the church, and then at the end, where in Revelation 21, this worldwide temple is described in the same exact language as Eden. That is, the world begins in a, in a garden temple, God gathering with his people, and, and, the, and the work is complete in the end where God dwells in a worldwide Eden garden temple with his people. And so this is one of the major themes that ties all of Scripture together. And the temple language in Scripture is for two purposes. The first you've already heard, God dwelling with his people. And when God created Adam and Eve... He fashioned a place in all of creation, a garden, fit for human habitation where he himself dwelt with his people. He came near. He was right there with Adam and Eve. And then because of sin, Adam and Eve were removed from God's presence. You've heard me say this before. When they sinned, God said, in the day that you eat of the fruit, you will surely die. When Adam and Eve... Adam and Eve ate of the fruit. They didn't physically cease to exist. They were removed from the temple. The way back into the temple was barred. They were removed from God's presence. That's death. Sin separates us from God, from temple, from access to God. And then because God is infinitely gracious, He has throughout the rest of history been working His sovereign plan to restore fellowship between God and man, to restore tabernacle, fellowship, temple fellowship between sinful man and God. And the highlight, the pinnacle of that plan is Christ. It is not by coincidence when Jesus came that it is said in the Gospel of John that Jesus came and tabernacled amongst us. He came and templed amongst us. He came and dwelt, accessed God and man together. And then, of course, in the church, we know that by God's Spirit, God is here amongst us. God's Spirit, in verse 16, dwells amongst us. And then in Revelation 21, the end of the world is a renewed creation that it becomes its own whole worldwide temple. The Garden of Eden goes worldwide, and God dwells with His people always and forever. And so this idea of temple is is central, and the purpose of temple is God dwelling with his people. The second purpose is holiness, separation from sin. God can't, comes and dwells with his people in holiness. We are to be set apart from evil. We are not to come into God's presence lightly. God built a temple in Israel not only as a dwelling place for him, but as an exclusion from anywhere else that God would be with people. Pastor Jeff said it. Of course, God is everywhere always. He is omnipresent. And yet, 
God's special, saving, covenantal, loving presence dwells with his people uniquely, and one of the uniquenesses there is in holiness. We make a mockery of dwelling in God's presence coming as just a worldling. So all of that is behind this language. Now, Paul begins to hint at this temple language before he says it explicitly in verse 16. In verse 9, you have this, uh, these two metaphors of the church being both God's field, agricultural garden, and God's building, temple language. So again, in Scripture, the garden and the temple are often intertwined. The Garden of Eden was a temple, and when the tabernacle and temple were built, it had all kinds of gardened pictures in it. And now here again, Paul picks this up and is pointing out that we, the church, are a fulfillment of this. We are God's garden, and we are God's temple. We are, in Christ, the whole point of God's saving work among men. And Paul, in verse 10, uses his language of a skilled master. You might remember back in the Old Testament when God gave the plans for building the temple, God also provided skilled workers. Workers who were very gifted in craftsmanship to make wood and metal objects fit exclusively for the temple. Now Paul is using that same exact language and applying it to him and through him to pastors and preachers and teachers. That is, we are building like Israel is building God's temple. Paul has been uniquely gifted for crafting God's people. And then, of course, in verse 12, Paul uses this language of gold, silver, and precious stones all over the Old Testament. That exact language is used to uh, refer to the building materials for the temple. So Paul is going to great lengths to make sure that the church, God's people, realize that we are the fulfillment of everything that God has been doing on earth to dwell with sinful man, His people renewed, reformed, uh, regenerated, and we are now the temple. Are you all tracking with me now? That is, this is a major, central, big theme in the Bible. And this is what you are. You are the garden temple. (laughs) You are the dwelling place of God with man. You are those in whom he is building up as his unique people. You are the point of everything that God has been doing. Now, of course, that doesn't mean we're anything, does it? It's the builder who gets all the glory, right? It's the one who makes the garden coming to existence grow that gets all the glory, right? That's Paul's point. Pastors plant, pastors water, but they're nothing. Only God gives the growth. So this temple language is everywhere. It's from beginning to end, and now it's applied specifically to the church. So there are some teachings in the last 150 years that wants to create a strict separation between God's people of the Old Testament, Israel, and God's people of the New Testament, the church. The saying or the the thinking goes that God has made all of these great promises in the Old Testament to Israel, but now he's kind of put that on hold, and now he's doing this church thing for a little bit, 
And then when he's done with that, he'll go back to Israel. And a new temple will be built, and all of the promises will come true for people who are ethnically Jewish. And that is not true according to Scripture here. God goes to great lengths to show that that Jew and Gentile in Christ are no longer separate but one. The church hasn't replaced Israel. The church is God's new humanity, new Adam and Eve being built up, Jew and Gentile, by faith in Christ. This is why Paul goes to great lengths to apply temple language to a mainly Gentile church. So that the hoity-toity Jewish Christians wouldn't think of themselves too highly. And so that God's people would look at all of the history of God's saving work, Old Testament and into Christ, and rejoice because God has been building this thing and that He has accomplished in Christ. So we read in our verses this morning that the church is God's temple. All that God has been doing from Eden through the fall All that he promises to do in the new creation is now found in the local church. God's spirit dwells within the church. The gathered church is the meeting place between God and his people. So, what is this for? And what does our text have to do with all of this temple stuff? So, we've already said that the temple is... Mainly the, is mainly for, described in the Bible, as a dwelling place between God and His people. Again, we have to have some expansiveness of mind here. It doesn't mean that God is only here and nowhere else. God is everywhere at all times, and yet God does not dwell in general with mankind as He dwells with His people. He has a unique concern, a unique focus, a unique special love for his people who are in Christ that he does not have for anyone else. And that is because God's Spirit dwells in us in a way that he does not dwell with all others everywhere else. And so this should be of great encouragement to you. And you'll notice in this text it has nothing to do with how good or beautiful or rich or great you are. It all has to do with God's grace. He has chosen to make us and every other local church throughout all history and all places His dwelling place. Isn't that incredible? That's what we are. God is present with us. And He is present with us to set us apart from the rest of creation to draw others to himself. So that's what this is for. Again, this doesn't have to do with a building. That uh, title, More Than Bricks, is apt. This is not about a geographic, physical location, but a gathered people. Uh, One thing to get straight here is the you, all the you's in these verses are not singular, they're plural. This isn't talking to you as an individual, although it is true in Christ, God's Spirit takes up residence in you. This is talking to us as a corporate church. This is talking to us gathered. And this isn't 
where two or three are gathered, there Jesus is. And when Jesus says that, he's talking about judging sinners. We're talking about when the church gathers. We as a church are the temple. So we have this unique place in the history of God's saving work among uh, the world. We are part of this line of garden temple that begins in Eden, goes through the tabernacle, goes through the temple, goes through Christ to us, and will end with this recreated earth that is a garden temple. We're part of this. We have a history. Our roots go deep back to creation. And, of course, this gives all glory to God. Who else can plan something like this and bring it to exact fulfillment as He's planned? Who else can begin a work, if you can do math, some 6,000 years ago and work with billions of people over all cultures and all language and do exactly what He wants done? And who would do it in the way that God has done it? Who would do it in the way that God has done it? Who would create a world knowing, planning that it would rebel against Him so that He could show us the glories of His grace and His Son to build a people from all tribes and languages and nations that are His dwelling place on earth. Who would do this? Here we are, a part of this, brothers and sisters. Little Pine Grove and Rhinelander, Wisconsin, is a part of this. We are here in these verses. So, Paul takes this big, central theme of temple, applies it to the local church, and then takes the situation in that local church and applies this temple theme to the daily nitty-gritty of church life. You all know what's been happening in the Corinthian church. We made it plain. They're condemning Paul's ministry, and they're fighting with each other incessantly. Paul is the parent of children who wake up and fight all day long until they go to sleep, and then they do it again and again and again. And Paul applies this truth to them. He says, you are God's temple, and because you are God's temple, knock it off. That's what he's going to do here. He is taking this central biblical temple theme and applying it as a corrective rebuke to their fighting and dividing and prideful, I'm better than you are under teachers thing. This is what the Bible does all the time. It takes big, huge, wondrous theological truths and asks you to apply it from the nose to the toes. The Bible, uh, God's, uh, God's wisdom is seen in taking these huge, wondrous abstractions and showing you how to live it on Monday morning in the workplace, in your marriage, in your finances, everywhere. So there is no divide in the Bible between theology and practice. You can't have one without the other. Another way to say it is, you do what you believe. What you believe inevitably 
comes out in how you speak and how you think and how you work and how you talk. And so their problem and all of their divisiveness was that they disbelieved the biblical truth. And so Paul takes this big biblical to the temple and, and shows them how to live it. So do not make the mistake, brothers and sisters, thinking theology is unimportant. Or theology is impractical. Or theology is only for the pastors. You are living your theology. You can't help it. How you act is determined by what you think, by what you believe, by what you embrace to be true. So Paul takes what you should believe to be true and applies it to how you live. He takes the garden temple central theme in Scripture and applies it to how you treat each other in church. And his application is verse 17. If anyone destroys God's temple... Now, in the context here of these first four chapters, he could be speaking either to the congregate, congregation and their infighting and dividing, or he could be speaking to the false teachers, preachers who had come in. Either way, it's true. If anyone, here's how to apply this, right? We are God's temple. If you mess with God's temple, he's going to mess you up. That's what Paul does here, right? If you damage God's people, God's people going to damage, or God's going to damage you, right? If you destroy God's temple, God's people, God will destroy you. Uh, That shouldn't be in the New Testament, right? Because God's a God of love. That, That belongs to those imprecatory psalms where the psalmist says, I wish that you would break their teeth and shatter their bones that they'd be childless for the next 1,500 generations. That's Old Testament God stuff. That's, that's not New Testament nice, loving, hippie Jesus stuff. There's got to be a mistake. Isn't there a manuscript error here? Where is the footnote? Surely at the bottom of the page it will say, like, it could mean something else, Right? I bet you when you do your Bible reading, you read past that one real fast. Right? I can't, it can't say that. Because <laughs> God is nice. Right? God sits at parks and makes balloons into animals and gives them to little kids. God doesn't destroy people who do mean things to his people. He doesn't do that. He's nice. No, he's not. He's a warrior. He's a defender of his people. He destroys those who destroy his people. Right? You get that, right? Man, this is what you're supposed to be, right? This is your job. This is our job as men. There's a reason so many of you are concealing and carrying weapons right now. Because you know this world is evil and people want to mess with your family and they won't do it, right? You get that because you're creating God's image as a man. This is the reason that we celebrate Memorial Day. Because we send men with big guns to kill other men who want to hurt us. And some of them give their lives. We celebrate that because that's what God is like. 
Now, what does it mean if anyone destroys God's temple? He's, he's unpacked up this point, and he gets specific in verses 18 and uh, 19 and 20. That is, sometimes we as God's people deceive ourselves. We think we're something. And because we think we're something, we become prideful, and pride always destroys. These people are pridefully dividing up under the personality of pastors. They're destroying God's church and their pride and their humanistic worldly thinking. And Paul's warning is if you keep it up, God's going to destroy you. And if you get a little bit later in 1 Corinthians in chapter 11, when they're making a mockery of God, of the celebration of the Lord's Supper, Paul says, many of you are weak, some of you have died because you are eating and drinking the Lord's Supper in an unworthy way, and you are eating and drinking judgment on yourself. God will not be mocked. God will not idly sit by because He is a Father, and when His family is being attacked, God puts on, straps on His sidearm and goes to war. So, Let's apply that to our culture. Our culture is currently hell-bent at destroying Christianity. They hate Christian teaching. They hate Christian morality. They hate Christian uh, scriptures. And you as a church should not get all bent out of shape there. Because anyone who tries to destroy God's people will themselves be destroyed. So go to sleep tonight. But that doesn't mean you should not defend truth. It does not mean you should do things at work that people tell you to do that are ungodly. The woman in Alabama, when same-sex marriage was passed, refused to give same-sex marriage licenses was doing the right thing. And those in the church who rebuked her and said she took the job, she'd do what they say were wrong. And so Paul, again, takes this huge theological truth and applies it to our little infighting in the church. So we are, this gets to the purpose of why you're here. What are you part of this church for? What has God made you a part of his temple for? What's your job? What's your calling? Is it not to build up the church? If God destroys those who destroy the church, that helps you define what you're supposed to do. You're not supposed to destroy it, so what are you supposed to do? Build it. In Ephesians 4, pastors and elders are given you to equip you for the work of the ministry of building up the body. That's your job. You're you're supposed to be a builder here. You're supposed to contribute to the spiritual maturation of other people here. Now, in Christianity, in the Scripture, it's either or. There's no middle ground. Sometimes we conceive of three categories. That is, you have people who are destroying the church. You have people who are just not not destroying nor building. They're just kind of in the muddy middle. They're just on the fence. But they're cool because they're not hurting the church. They're not helping, but they're not hurting. And then you have people who are actively helping. The Bible knows no middle category. If you're not for me, you're against me. If you're not a builder, you're a destroyer. There's no middle ground.
Amen? <laughs> no amens to that one. <laughs> I'll say it. That's true. Do you not fear God? Do you not fear God? It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God with how you treat His church. If you are not a builder, you're a destroyer. You are brought here to be a builder. You were brought here to do your little insignificant part to build Christ's church. And you know throughout Scripture, the importance of the builder is not defined in how publicly seen your efforts are. When we get to 1 Corinthians 12 to 14, you will see that the most seemingly quiet, behind the scenes, never known effort in the church are as important as this. Every part in the body matters. If one part isn't doing their part, the body is hurting. If your pinky toe is stubbed, the entire body is affected. You matter. You matter. So, one of the ways I... I, speaking to Pine Grove Community Church, that you need to apply this. We don't have a bunch of people actively trying to do evil here right now. Thank God. It's really nice. We don't have warring factions that I'm aware of. We don't have divisive people who are working behind the scenes to build a coalition. That'll probably happen someday, but right now we don't have to deal with that. Right? We don't have people trying to do the power grab thing and rule over others and all that stuff. We don't have that right now. Thank God. But one thing that we do have is we do have passivity. A husband can destroy his marriage by actively doing heinous things or passively not doing what he should do. You got it? You understand where I'm going with this? You can destroy something by actively doing things to destroy it or by passively not doing the things that you should be doing. If you work at a business where the boss is sexually immoral or taking funds and misusing them, he's doing actively, active things to destroy the business, that's bad. But if you work at a business where the boss is just passively not doing the things he should be doing to build the business, it's going to destroy the business too, right? might take a little longer. And he'll be seen not in the same light as if he destroyed it actively, but it's just as bad. The temptation in our day, especially among men, isn't the active destroying, it's the passively destroying things. Right? Fathers destroy families, not, not mainly in alcoholism, but in passivity, not disciplining their children. They're good guys. And good guys are killing us. So if you're not a builder, you're a destroyer. And I want to draw attention. What are you doing at all to build this body? Do you pray regularly for your church family? Do you attend Sunday morning worship in order to Take in God's Word. Sing His glorious grace. Encourage each other just by your demeanor. When's the last time you invited somebody from Pine Grove over for 
frozen pizza even. Practice any kind of hospitality for God's people. How about giving? Do you give a tenth of your income to support the ministry of the local church? Are you investing in other projects here financially? How about your time? Are you willing to mow the lawn here? This is a thing that gets me so... And if you're a gossiper, I can deal with that. Honestly. If, if you're actively trying to... At least we have a target. <laughs> right, right. One of the things the elders talk about all the time is we're not going to let the fight come to us. We're going to take the fight to you. <laughs> That's what we do. That's part of our job. But one thing that is just so frustrating is people who will not clean a toilet. They, they want their input in the church all the time. Why aren't you doing more of this? Why don't you? And I say, when is the last time you have raked a leaf here? When is the last? Are you too good to be an usher? That, there's no place for that in the church. You can't be a critic if you're not willing to vacuum or clean somebody's gutters, right? Or, or mow a widow's lawn. There's no place for it in God's people. Nobody has the spiritual gift of taking out the garbage, but somebody's got to do it. Uh, what are you doing to actively build the body? Now, in these kind of messages, typically all the wrong people get all of the wrong message. The people who do the work and are willing to clean the toilet feel guilty right now because they're not doing more. I'm not talking to you. Go to sleep. You're doing fine. And then those of you who say, but I did this and I, I'm talking to you. Right? If you don't think I'm talking to you, I'm talking to you. If you think I'm talking to you, I'm probably not talking to you. <laughs> And, and you should fear God. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. That's the only singular pronoun in the whole thing. Now Paul goes from temple to exhorting God's people to right, loving, building, even doing the smallest things. Now, again, I am not here advocating for you to give $100,000 a building program and give 40 hours a week and volunteer... The little things matter in church life. The little things that nobody ever sees. That's what I'm talking about here. So Paul goes from temple to exhorting us to not deceive ourselves, but do the little things. And then he ends in verses 20 to 23 with this, or 21 to 23 with this huge thing. Don't boast in men. Right? For everything is yours. Paul, Apollos, Cephas, world, life, death, present. Everything is yours. Everything is yours. God is giving to His temple people everything. Go back to the Beatitudes. What do you inherit for being meek? Everything! What is God going to give His people in the end? Everything. Why would you settle for aligning yourself with one little pitiful man? He's giving you everything in the end. What do you inherit? You get whatever Christ received by his death and resurrection, which is everything. 
Do you not realize how generous God is? Why would you settle for little pity parties and infighting and dividing and not doing your part when you'll get everything? This is one of the things you'll see throughout Scripture. God's promises that He makes to His people always get fulfilled times a million. What does God promise Israel? A little chunk of land on the earth. How does He fulfill the promise? Here's the whole earth. <laughs> he promised them five bucks and gave them 50 billion. And you know what we do as humans? But you promised me five dollars! Right? We complain. He, his promises, the, 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 the fulfillments are always expanded. That's what he's doing here. He's going to give you everything. He's going to give you everything. One way to kill your sin is to see that everything that God will give you. Sin always settles for less than what God has promised. It always grabs hold of what you believe you deserve here and now for temporary satisfaction and lets go of everything that God promises. That's how foolish we are. That's how generous God is. And then Paul ends in verse 23, and you are Christ and Christ is God's. God promises you everything, but that's not the most important thing. The most important thing is that you're Christ's. And that Christ is God, which means, of course, you belong to God. In your suffering, you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. Why would you ever do anything to destroy God's temple when we get everything? And we have, and we are Christ, and Christ is God. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would apply this great truth of temple and all that we receive to our daily lives. God, I pray that you would cause us as your people to be a part of building it and not idly sit by passively watching others do the work. And God, we would define that work as people work. That we would define it as doing the little things in Scripture to love and serve and feed and pray for and care for your people. It's not a title, it's a person. And so, God, would you cause us to love your people in the coming weeks better and more. We ask this for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. The charge is this. I don't want you to hear this sermon of wondering, okay, what role am I going to fill? Do we... Need Sunday school teachers? Do we need buildings and grounds? Yeah, we need that. But don't think roles, think people. Like, who can I meet with once a month for the next six months to read the Bible? Who can I gather to pray with Monday mornings before work? Who can we as a family invite over for dinner in the next month? Right, think people here. We're talking about building Christ's body. Think people, not roles, not jobs. People. All right. Peace be to the brothers in love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ with an incorruptible love. Amen.